The Trump administration has set in motion a potentially huge legal battle between the federal government and California. Let's backtrack. For decades, California has had the right to set its own limits on air pollution that comes from cars and trucks. The state was granted this special right after facing some serious air pollution problems in the 1960s. Those limits, typically, have been stricter than the standards set by the federal government. And so, many other states across the country choose to opt in to California's standards. The Trump administration, meanwhile, wants to change that. On Wednesday, President Trump tweeted that he's revoking California's power to set its own standards. The Environmental Protection Agency and the Transportation Department confirmed that move with a formal announcement Thursday morning. It's a move that reflects a broader approach by the Trump administration to roll back Obama-era climate policies. And it may spark a legal battle that highlights the complicated relationship between federal law and states' rights. It also raises questions about how climate policy is put in place, about how much a president can do on environmental regulation without passing laws through Congress, and whether we're just stuck in a circle of setting and rolling back emission standards as administrations change. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Knight. Juliet Alperin is the Washington Post's national affairs correspondent who spent significant time reporting about environmental policy. I asked her why fuel emission standards exist and what they're intended to do. They are designed to tackle a couple of things. First and foremost, climate change. The idea is the transportation sector now ranks as the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And Tailpipe emissions are the largest portion of that. So the idea is from this point forward, for example, our power plants are already getting cleaner. But if you really want to tackle climate change, you've got to deal with cars and trucks. So that's a significant reason. There are other environmental benefits from making cars more efficient and having them run cleaner. And that really has to do with the traditional air pollution that essentially these vehicles contribute to, say, smog, which causes everything from heart and lung disease to, you know, asthma attacks and so forth. And so for there, there are other upsides to tackling this, but climate change is central. Can you explain to me how our national standards for carbon emissions from automobiles have traditionally been determined? Who sets them? Where do they come from? It's not the simplest of answers, but let's give it a go. So traditionally, since the 1970s, the Transportation Department sets what they call fuel economy, meaning mileage standards for cars and light trucks. And so they have kind of primary authority over this. However, there has been an exception that for roughly half a century, California has had under the Clean Air Act, where that state is allowed to set stricter tailpipe emissions limits if it wants, because it's had a significant air pollution problem. And over time, California has really been very forward looking on this. It's been seen as kind of a laboratory of innovation when it comes to automobiles. And so as a result, the federal government has let California take the lead. And for decades now, if other states want to adopt California standards, they can do so. All right. This is complicated. So I'm going to break it down a little further. 
Because California has the power to set its own standards, separate from the federal government, it has this unique power to influence the federal government when it comes to the fuel economy, to anchor policy, and to appeal to shared needs in other states. One thing that is a big change that happened under the Obama administration in the early years is essentially you had California pushing ahead with regulating carbon emissions from cars and trucks. This drove the auto industry crazy because they had to, they were faced with the idea that they'd have one set of rules in part of the country and a different set of rules in the other. And so everyone came together in a grand bargain in 2009. And at that point, you had the federal government, meaning the Transportation Department and the Environmental Protection Agency, working with California and setting a single standard. And that applied to both mileage and the carbon pollution coming out of cars and trucks. Together, that bargain in 2009 produced one fuel standard across the country, including for California. So it stands at roughly 37 miles per gallon, and it was slated over the next five years to increase to nearly 51 miles per gallon. So that was the path that we were on before the Trump administration decided this was one of the rules it wanted to target and reverse. The Trump administration announced plans in August of 2018 to freeze fuel standards at that 37 mile per gallon number until 2026. That's a major rollback from the Obama-era plan to reach a 51-mile-per-gallon standard in the next five years. So, in response, California undercut Trump's plan just a few months ago, in July. The California Air Resources Board made a deal with four automakers, Ford, Honda, Volkswagen, and BMW of North America, to produce fleets of automobiles that can get emissions to nearly 50 miles per gallon by 2026. Now, Trump's new plan to revoke California's power is the latest move in this escalating battle. California is now likely to bring this fight to court. But why exactly does the Golden State have this special power to begin with? So it really dates back to the 1960s. And at that point, pollution was a very serious issue. It still is a challenge in California, but really was in, uh, you know, essentially in the 50s and 60s in areas like Los Angeles and elsewhere, people might even, you know, remember the images that, again, are quite historic at this point where you could see how dirty the air was. And so essentially, California had begun tackling this when federal lawmakers in Congress started writing the Clean Air Act. And at that point, California officials said, look, we want to have this right to to ask permission. It's not it's not a guarantee that you'll get it, but to ask permission of the federal government to go further and faster than you because we really think we have to tackle it. And one thing that's very interesting that California's current governor, Gavin Newsom, brought up is this was Governor Ronald Reagan asking this, you know, and getting it granted in a law signed by Richard Nixon. So it really gives you some perspective on both how long ago this was and what a shift we've seen in the Republican Party when it comes to some of these issues. Right. So California essentially got a waiver to write its own standards then. Has that been tested or questioned before this moment? It has. Once before, in 2007, what happened was at that time, California was seeking this waiver on this very issue. They had passed a law saying that they were going to tackle carbon pollution from cars and, and trucks, and they needed the federal government to give them the right to do that because at that point, this was not something that was happening 
here in Washington. And there, at that point, under the George W. Bush administration, EPA denied the waiver. They said, you can't get it. And in fact, California sued. And again, it took this was really this fight was dragging on at the very end of the George W. Bush administration. President Obama took office and his administration granted the waiver. So that's somewhat similar to what we're seeing now. Yes. The key difference that people raise is that at that point, there wasn't a waiver And so they were asking permission and it was denied. Now you're revoking an existing waiver. And so it really depends on which lawyer you talk to, but it is unprecedented to have the federal government take away a waiver it has already granted to California. Individual states can choose to comply with the federal government or with California. Is that problematic or how does that work? Right. In the mid-70s, Congress affirmed the right for other states to opt in to the California air pollution standards. And so, again, this dates back a long time. Everyone said it was okay, And so that's why you have so many states right now who have embraced the California standards. The real question we're facing is that none of these other states can independently set their own standards. And so depending on how this court fight between the Trump administration and California plays out, all of the other states will essentially have to fall into line one way or another. If California can defend its right to uphold its own air pollution standards, then these other states will have the right to adopt them. But if that's taken away from California, these other states will have no option and they will have to abide by the federal standards. Are there benefits to having one national standard versus a standard set by California that some states can follow? There is is certainly a large advantage to a national standard because these are, for example, targets that your fleet has to average. And so basically, there are a mix of cars and trucks that people buy depending on what state they live in. And for everyone, there's an advantage to basically having as broad a playing field as possible so that, for example, consumers have a wide range of choices in terms of the vehicles. For example, one of the things that automakers have warned is that if California and a handful of states have a much stricter standard, there might be certain cars and trucks for sale there, and they might actually go out of state to have to buy the vehicle they want because there are certain targets that you'll have to meet in a given state. So there's almost no one who would argue that a national standard isn't the most sensible option. The question is, how do you reach that? Do you reach it by the federal government setting it, or do you reach it by some sort of compromise that you can reach with different players? Let's talk more about that tension between the Trump administration and and California. What does the administration say is the reason that they want to revoke this waiver? So I would say that the Trump administration would say that they want to relax these mileage standards because of a couple of factors, including the fact that Americans like large, less efficient cars. And so people were more optimistic when the Obama administration initially adopted these targets that first, that the price of oil would remain high and that Americans would buy more efficient cars and light trucks. Over time, the price of oil has fallen and consumers have continued to show that they are interested in buying, you know, vehicles cars. <laughs> that, are, that are big and use more gas. And so they would say, look, we're facing reality here. You know, Americans are not flocking to buy electric vehicles and this is unreasonable. We think that if we don't demand as efficient 
new cars, what happens is the sticker price when you enter the showroom will be lower. More Americans will trade in their old clunkers and get cars. Maybe they won't be as efficient as what the Obama administration had had envisioned, but they will be buying new cars and this will be great for everybody. So Trump, in his tweet about this, he said that by revoking California's waiver, it would lead to safer and, and less expensive cars for the consumer. Is there evidence that supports that? There's not tons of evidence for what he's saying. In terms of if you want to take the issue of making autos less expensive, it is true that their sticker price will likely be lower. They will be more costly over the course of lifetime of of an individual car truck. In other words, there's no question that you'll be paying more for any car truck that you drive because you'll be paying more for the gas. So they won't be cheaper in the long run, but they will be cheaper the moment you buy them. In terms of the safety argument, that is one which to this point has not been fully supported by the evidence. The administration issued a proposal last year, and while it had an analysis that suggested this, even the Environmental Protection Agency itself disagreed with that analysis and made it clear in the documents that we've received. So the idea that it is something that they continue to emphasize again on this theory that you're going to be more likely to buy a new car, but it won't be quite as expensive as one under the Obama standards. There does not appear to be robust evidence supporting that yet. They will have one more crack at this, and there's a chance that they're going to show a level of analysis that that supports this more strongly than what they've shown so far. So Americans want, theoretically, less expensive cars, but bigger cars or large cars. What do we know about what they want about stricter fuel efficiency standards? They are in favor of stricter fuel efficiency standards. We are all full of contradictions, <laughs> you and me. So, so what's very interesting is the Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation asked this specific question recently because we wanted to know the answer. And, and in a poll that we published last week showed that 66% of Americans back the idea of stricter fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks and that an equal number, just 1% more, support the idea of their state being able to set these standards rather than being dictated by the federal government. Then given all of this, what grounds does the Trump administration actually have to revoke the waiver? So if California does challenge it in court, would the administration likely win? It's a little hard to tell. You know, for 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 this reason that the argument they're they're basically as as we understand it and it's a little tough because we're going off conversations with officials and the president's tweets but the argument that that the administration will make is that the federal government has the right to set fuel economy standards this is something that was enshrined in a 1975 law and therefore it doesn't make sense for California to do this and moreover in terms of tackling climate change, California can't make the argument that this is really the air pollution threat that they face and that it's their right to do this. Congress has has time and time again granted and recognized California's authority to regulate tailpipe emissions. So they certainly will come into court with that in their pocket. But could the Trump administration successfully make this case, particularly if it gets up to the Supreme Court, where conservatives have a 5-4 majority? 
that's something that's difficult to predict. From a civics perspective, how common is it for there to be this tension between the federal government wanting to set laws and state-level governments wanting to set different laws? That is something that really is constant. And for example, we saw under the previous administration that there were tons of attorneys general from conservative states who challenged the Obama administration's right to set these laws on healthcare and immigration. And so there's this real tension between, I would say, states and the federal government just because we've become so polarized as a country that you have different factions suing each other, but this push and pull between the federal and state level, which has is longstanding, has intensified just because the two sides are so far apart at this point. And a lot of those decisions come down to the courts, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the crazy things. And it's really interesting, particularly in the realm that I'm dealing with when you're writing about energy and the environment. There's essentially, it's so difficult to pass a law that everything is being done through these regulations. And as a result, everything is fought out and ultimately decided in court. How are bringing out the regulations different than passing the law? What's the difference in process? Basically, it's a lot easier when you're empowered. Well, you can still bring court challenges to, say, you know, a law that's been passed. It It is simply a lot easier to defend um, a law where there's a clear mandate from Congress and that, by definition, kind of gives you a level of constitutional authority that when you are interpreting, when you're issuing a a regulation and it's really an administration and the executive branch's interpretation of how to interpret existing laws, there's more wiggle room there. And so you really do have these issues having to be decided in, in court. To help me understand a little bit more about how the executive branch can shape policy outcomes, I want to talk a little bit about Trump and Obama's perspectives on the environment. You were White House bureau chief when Barack Obama was president. Can you tell me a little bit about his approach to environmental policy and climate change more broadly? Yeah. Well, so one thing that's interesting is that while he always argued from when he was elected that climate change is something to be addressed, he really embraced it fully and made it a priority in his second term. In his first term, there was an effort to, again, pass legislation. This was called the Waxman-Markey bill, which actually passed the House but then stalled in the Senate. That would have established nationwide limits on greenhouse gas emissions, and you wouldn't have ha- be having these turf battles about all these individual policies because you actually would have had an overarching law that would be tackling it. And so what's interesting is that you know he put some effort into this, but essentially his higher priority was passing the the Affordable Care Act. The White House devoted its energy to that. And as a result, we really didn't see, uh, you know, climate legislation make it across the finish line. So in his second term, he became convinced that this was one of the most important issues facing the country and something that he would be judged by people, you know, generations from now. And so he did essentially enact all these policies using his executive authority. And so what we're seeing right now is the unwinding of all of these initiatives that he put in place, whether you're talking about an international court on climate change, which the president has announced he wants to withdraw from, to, you know, all of these initiatives. It's really really showing to some extent both he tried to accomplish a great deal in his second term, but it is vulnerable to attack in a way it wouldn't have been if he had, for example, managed to pass a law. The Trump administration has systematically 
targeting every single climate policy that Barack Obama put in place. And so this is certainly part of a broader effort to roll back the previous administration's climate policies. More broadly, what we've seen with many of these initiatives from the administration is they want to circumscribe the extent to which the federal government can regulate in the environmental arena, particularly when it comes to climate change. So if they can, and I was talking to a conservative expert that endorses the administration's position yesterday, if they can essentially rob California of its right to be the leader on this issue and take away their leverage in all of these discussions, it will make it much harder for any future administration to set strict carbon limits on cars and trucks. And so that's part of the end game here. That they'll put something in place that's hard to undo. Yes, that they'll put they'll put something in place and yeah, and make it harder for a future administration to act aggressively because they won't have that nudge from California that puts pressure on, say, the automakers and leads to greater federal regulation. And Trump's general approach to environmental policy and climate change is much different from Obama's, obviously. Absolutely. He has a totally different view of this. And one of the things that I find really interesting is it came out when actually our colleague Josh Dossie was questioning about this on a recent uh, foreign trip. And he was asking the president about climate change. And the way President Trump described it, he's, he equated oil and gas drilling with the creation of wealth and sees very little downside, very few negative impacts from climate change the way that many scientists have been warning. Right. Which see, what puzzles me about both of these presidents and their different approaches to climate science is that science is empirical. Science is provable. So I guess the question I pose to you, though it may be unanswerable, is how can two administrations with the same access to scientific information draw conclusions towards such different policies? It's a really interesting question, especially because it is worth noting when you look at what federal scientists are saying about both the causes of climate change and the potential impacts of it, that has been remarkably consistent between President Obama and President Trump's time in office. If you look at the national climate assessments, if anything, again, those predictions of what's happening with climate change and what will happen have become more dire under this administration. It's not that the federal government and its experts have changed their tune on it. I think you have two presidents with very different philosophies. Obviously, I spent much more time with Barack Obama than I have with Donald Trump. But there's no question when I talk to folks in both administrations, the, you know, federal scientists and, and, and for example, the president's scientific advisor had so much more access to Barack Obama than, for example, his counterpart in the Trump administration has. So, you know, it, it's true that broadly speaking, the federal government is is producing similar findings. But in terms of to what extent is, you know, the president reading scientific papers on climate change and getting briefed on the challenges that are posed by it, it's a very different picture under this administration compared to the previous one. So if a lot of the things that Obama did were done by executive order and regulation, and now we see the Trump administration coming in and undoing many of those things and putting their own policies in place, do we expect that the next president might set their own set of policies, undo what the previous presidents have done? Is this kind of a never-ending evolution on that climate is, change? That is, that is the <laughs> dilemma we all face. There's, there's no question that if a Democrat wins next year, that the next president will essentially seek to reverse 
everything that Donald Trump has done on climate change the way he has done to his predecessor. I'm willing to bet anything on that. Whether it's a never-ending cycle is an interesting question, and I think in many ways that will be decided by the voters. In other words, one of the things that is really interesting is that historically, climate change simply has not been a significant priority for voters. It just hasn't mattered. And as a result, you certainly have seen it as a lower priority for the politicians in office. Should we see a shift? Should we see, for example, a huge number of young voters who rank this as a higher priority come out to vote and make a difference in elections, things like that? Politicians take their cues from the public, and that could lead to, for example, more sweeping legislation and kind of a long-term solution and a more bipartisan approach to this. But it would really take something like that, I'd say, to get beyond this push and pull that we seem to have between Democratic and Republican administrations on this issue. Okay. Well, my last question to you. Until then, what do you see as the next steps from the Trump administration in this effort to undo Obama's environmental legacy? What are you looking into? So there's so many things. I'll start with um, I'll start with the fact that even as they're taking away California's authority to set mileage standards, they haven't said what their own are mm -hmm. going to be. And so what we're waiting for is sometime later this year they will finalize their rules for mileage standards for cars and light trucks between now and, and model year 2026. When you talk to administration officials, the ones who are honest say they haven't figured out exactly what they're going to do. So that will be one of the things I'll be looking for. Um, another rollback that I will be looking for in the coming weeks is I write a lot about the expansion of oil and gas drilling on protected areas and 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 federal lands and offshore. And so there's a place in Alaska called the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. It's the largest wilderness area in the country. It's the size of Indiana. And there was a grand bargain again in 2013 under Barack Obama where they decided that half of it could be drilled and the other half would remain protected. And the administration has uh, torn up that uh, blueprint and they will be issuing their own and expanding drilling there. So, you know, that's just that's just one. But there, there are plenty of others that are that are coming in the in the months to come. All right. We will look out for that reporting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? This week's episode was in part inspired by questions from you on Twitter about whether or not Trump could, in fact, revoke California's waiver. So keep sending us questions like that. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Allison Mikes, or you can shoot me an email. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the delightful Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.